0: I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, but we'll focus specifically this morning on verses 6 through 10, but to read them in their larger context of the marriage supper of the Lamb, beginning in verse 1, Revelation chapter 19. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God. Who sat on the throne saying, Amen! Amen! Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing, the preaching of God's matchless word. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we would ask... that in our hearts there might be something of the Amen, Alleluia in us, that even as we await the perfection of our bodies and the full and final mortification of sin in them, that we would be moved this day to see what all of human history is building towards and that we might build in that direction, that we would not waste our lives neglecting these prophecies, what is given to us in your word, but to be instructed, to be moved and to be shaped so that we ourselves might be present in that glorious wedding that day that we all wait for, when faith shall be sight and we shall be brought into your presence, not only sealed for that day, but there on that day. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. One of the challenges of living and preaching sections of scripture like this uh, is that there is a tone, an emotion, a sense, a feeling that is rightly to be grasped in the midst of such epic sections of scripture like these. And it is often difficult to balance the joy, the glory, the severity and sobriety of passages like these in the midst of a daily life. I was having a discussion with my sons the other day, they were looking at the browsing history on my Amazon app, and they saw a small metal statue of a donkey. And they said, what is this? (laughs) And I said, that's my theme animal. One day I'd like to purchase such an animal and keep it on my desk to remind me, at the heart, this is what every minister really is, right? You remember Balaam and his donkey, (laughs) I'm just someone who endeavors to speak for the Lord even like that donkey spoke so many years ago to Balaam who refused to listen that at the end of the day I am a broken man speaking to broken men of the glory of the one who is able by his grace to put us together one beggar showing another beggar where to find food. And so The unenviable task in reading sections of scripture like these and then preaching on them is to try to convey something of the emotion of these moments in my voice, in the tone and tenor of it, in the volume of it, and I have come to the conclusion that some things are just better left seen. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not going to preach on this text, but I need you to Trust me, or rather trust the Lord, that what is coming is far greater than any mind can imagine, any eye has ever seen. Glorious are the things that the Lord has in store for us. I can say this, though, that moments like this in Revelation chapter 9 are better compared with the very thing that we see here. The emotion, the sentiment, the joy of a wedding, either of your own wedding or that of a child or a dear friend, and the emotion and the joy and all that is that sort of is wrapped up in it. In Revelation chapter 19, that is what we find. We find a wedding, a wedding not between two mere people, but of Christ, the bridegroom and the church, the bride, and it is glorious indeed. Two points then that I want to make. As we look at Revelation chapter 19, the first, rejoicing at the marriage of the Lamb, rejoicing at the marriage of the Lamb, and then second, a history-making moment. A history-making moment, or perhaps all of history has led to this moment. All of human history has led to this moment. Let's look at the first point, rejoicing at the marriage of the Lamb. Now, One of the first things that we can see in Revelation chapter 19 is the vast company of people who are there. And I've said already that those who are there are the entire church. Previously in the book of Revelation, we find that whole host named and sealed by the Father given the name of Christ Jesus, and there are therefore two types of people as it relates to the divine decrees of God prior to the creation of all things, prior to time and space, in eternity past, in the eternal mind of God, the Father, it belongs to the Father to elect, to choose through his own wise, sovereign decrees those who would be given to the Son, That was the Father's responsibility. We speak of the Father as the one who elects. It is the Son who redeems. It is the Spirit who applies. You ought to know and pray and think according to those boundaries or responsibilities given to all three persons of the Godhead. And so we can rightly say God does it, but particular, the persons of the Godhead, the Father elects. And so everyone who was there was there because they got an invitation, as it were, to continue with that illustration. They were invited. And they were invited and made eligible to receive that invitation by the Spirit, even as the blood of Christ was applied. And so all who were there are there because of the triune saving work of God. And because everyone is there, because they've all gathered and they have seen the mighty acts of Christ in particular, because Revelation is really a chronicling of what Christ has done, having taken the throne, they could not, we could not be there, apart from the redeeming work of Christ, though we have been chosen by the Father, we have been chosen through the Son... We are all together gathered in order to celebrate the very thing that is taking place, which is a wedding. And that is all that Revelation, or that is what Revelation has been building to this entire time. Christ has prepared history for us, still future. He is preparing, he is shaping, he is ruling in order to bring us to the place that we find in Revelation chapter 19. And so in one sense, we can speak of the timeless nature of our being gathered around the throne through the decree of election. But as it relates to these things actually being accomplished, we are not here yet. Are you all following? It's tough. It's tough because much of Scripture, especially these apocalyptic sections, call us to think of time and space in more than just one way. God has chosen. And so we are there in Christ, but there will also come a time when we, outside of the counsel of God's decretive will, will experience his presence as we experience each other's presence today. We will will one day be there. And the multitude that are guests gathered are also the bride. It's sort of a mixed metaphor. Well, it is a mixed metaphor. The bride are the guests. Everyone there is, in essence, getting married or enjoying the final component of the marriage of Christ to his bride. And for this reason, everyone's excited. Everyone's happy. The consistent... Tone and tenor and emotion is joy and celebration. Which is why we see four times, really there's a fifth time that has been translated that we see in verse 5. Praise our God. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! alleluia. Five times we see this repeated. One of them, there is an amen attached to it. Yes, We are those who sing Alleluia. And the reason why the entire group of people are singing it is because of what is happening and that they are in the place they are. So on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings or both, when you gather together in worship of the Lord, one of the things that should be sort of a sense or emotion Of our hearts, a feeling is that of joy in his presence. Even in the midst of perhaps suffering, trial, pain, distraction. Believe me, we've experienced that. And so the worship of Revelation chapter 19 is like the worship that we experience every Lord's Day, but without any of the sin and distraction that come in earthly worship. Which I can't imagine... I cannot imagine it. And the reason I cannot imagine it, though I know it will not be unlike what we are experiencing, is because of the condition of my heart being radically transformed. Joy has a way of being a predominant emotion And an emotion that brings perspective for the Christian, even in the midst of trial and sorrow. And so one of the reasons why the saints are singing as they are in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, is because all of the hard worship that they have done is over. It is one thing in the midst of prison, behind bars, to sing praises to God, knowing that he is sovereign, knowing that even this persecution and suffering is designed by him to work sanctification in you and to actually build the church because one of the great testimonies and hallmarks of the kingdom of Christ is that it can grow in the kind of soil that nothing else can grow. and to now be completely set free. The martyrs around the throne, those who have died in Christ, are no longer being hung by the neck, burned by flames, eaten by beasts, tortured. They are saved from all of that. And the fact that they are there in the presence of Almighty God, having once been persecuted, having suffered, having died even for Christ Jesus, how much of an improvement is it from the circumstances of living as the church militant? Listen, the hardest days that you and I have ever suffered, most likely are either days of deep, personal, physical pain or emotional pain caused by suffering. The church in this area of the world has the distinct privilege of not suffering much, but also the distinct lack of privilege by not getting to suffer more. Now, I'm not asking for suffering. But the contrast of a life of martyrdom and misery for the sake of Christ, contrasted with the glories of worship in heaven, would lead any of us to a place of abundant joy. Not out-of-control joy, but a kind of joy that is even rare in our own lives. It's the kind of joy children have In the midst of a great gift or a unique turn of providence that they did not expect. A kind of joy that doesn't just lead to leaping and singing, but also at times weeping. Emotions uncontrolled by relief. This is a clear testimony of God's sovereignty. And one of the reasons they focused on judgment in verses 1 through 5 is as a reflection of God's righteous rule over evil. Christ is a king who punishes wicked people. And all of those who labor and toil against the church will receive their just condemnation, but those who die in Christ Jesus will be raised to this life imperishable. And so this whole multitude of verse 6, a voice of a great multitude, that is the whole church in every age, billions of people singing together, somehow, like in a musical where everybody sings the same lyrics and you don't know how they do it, it's because it's a musical. It's mythology. It's, it's something that could never take place unless unless you are here in Revelation 19. And all of that is a picture of what we find in Revelation 19, where everyone, together with one voice in the great unity led by the Spirit, untouched by sin, sings forth in harmonious noise. And it isn't cacophony. It is sweet and melodic and moving. And you never want to stop. In fact, if you allow yourself a moment in the worship of God to be disinterested with the clock, then psalms like Psalm 103c, yes, it has eight verses. Psalm 144 has more than that. But once you get started and you have entered into, as it were, The beautiful marriage of lyric and tune, it is impossible not to be moved by the things, the truths, that are so beautifully worked out in song from God's word, such that there are, in the worship of the saints, glimpses and, at times, emotions, though, children, you may or may not have experienced this yet, or you just don't want it to end I remember having a conversation with my children about long books, 500 pages. I said, yeah, but what if those 500 pages are some of the best pages you've ever read? When you get to the final chapter, you go, oh, I can't believe the book is over. So then what do you do? You turn back to page one and you read it again. (laughs) There's some books like that. They're not written anymore, but there are a lot of books like that. Such is the story, not only of Scripture, but the exuberance of heaven is one in which the saints of God will never tire body and soul in their singing of allelujahs to the king, because it's just so good. And so what John beholds here is a movement, a shift after all of these things, not all the destruction of Jerusalem, but when Christ has brought to conclusion the destruction of all the enemies of his people, he will gather them into his presence and they will celebrate the finalization of the mission. And so this is, secondly, a history-making moment all of history all of history sorry all of history has led to this moment to this wedding and what we find in terms of the characters the lamb and his bride now there are those who are speaking one in particular who's speaking to John but it is really a vision of the lamb and his bride his beautiful bride in psalm chapter 45 the psalmist writes of a royal wedding that took place in israel but it is more than just that it is the record of the wedding of the bridegroom who is the Messiah, the true king of Israel, to his bride, that is Israel herself, the church. And the wedding is this glorious occasion, and all of the characters are there, but the psalmist focused specifically on the handsome bridegroom and the beautifully arrayed and beautiful bride. And when all of that takes place, everyone is looking at the bridegroom and the bride, And they are filled with joy, knowing that the bridegroom and the bride are filled with joy. It's a royal wedding. It's a royal, heavenly wedding. Psalm 45 is about Revelation chapter 19. And I would say that we really need to look at all of human history in these terms. That of a father giving to a son a bride... The son pursuing that bride even when she rebelled against him. The bridegroom winning the bride through his redeeming power made possible by his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the bridegroom bringing the bride to himself, adorning her with a beautiful garment, and then the bride, in response to the love of the bridegroom, the husband, clothing herself in such a way as to make herself fit for the day of her celestial wedding. And not only does it describe human history, it describes our covenant relationship with God as individuals and as a corporate body. And so it expresses something in terms of the width of human history, but also the depth of our personal salvation with Christ or with the Godhead. And so the bride is there because she is sealed. But the bride is there dressed as she is, because she has dressed herself. She is beautiful in part by the gift that only the Father, Son, and Spirit could give her, but she is also beautiful by the Spirit working out in her the fine garments that she wears. Now, as we look, and I'll talk about it in a moment, I want to talk about missions. Missions as a way or as, a, as, as the means by which we are inviting people to the wedding feast. But when we look at missions, one of the things that we must understand as it relates to going after those lost sheep of Israel who are known in the mind of God but not known to us, having been called by him to go out and bring them in, is that missions is not just seeking to save a soul from hell, but seeking to make them fit for heaven. The way that it looks in the church is the keys of the kingdom are evangelism and discipleship. We go out and we bring in. And once they have been brought in, having confessed Christ and been baptized, what happens next? We disciple them. We strengthen them. We endeavor to help them be arrayed in fine linen, verse 8, clean and bright because this is the righteous acts of the saints. So the clothes you wear around your house every day, maybe some of you dress up, sweats, T-shirts, comfortable stuff, is what you share up, show up to before you put on the wedding dress, right? <laughs> you, would, you would be aghast. You would be aghast. If the bride began walking down the aisle in a pair of Hanes sweatshirts and sweat, you know, sweatshirt and sweatpants, look at her and go, "No, sorry." She would not be arrayed in fine linen, and her future husband would look at her and go, "Okay, I don't need a glimpse of twenty years in the future. Let's let's at the very least dress up for this occasion." And that is what we find here. It is a formal event. It's not stuffy. But you have a bridegroom who is glorious. Of this, we have read over and over and over again throughout the book of Revelation the glory, the righteousness, the power, the plans and purposes of the one who sits upon the throne. And this handsome, glorious Redeemer has an equal and complementary, beautiful bride. And not only is she beautiful in appearance, but she is dressed for the occasion. And what she wears is a garment that is of her Redeemer's making, but also her own. Now of this, one commentator writes, the preparedness of the bride involves two distinct aspects. On the one hand, the righteous acts that comprise her wedding attire are a gift of grace granted to her by God. On the other, she has made herself ready. These bring out both man's and God's agency in the sanctification of the church. That there is an element of growth that Christ expects of his bride having chosen and redeemed, and blessed her by his love. And it isn't just for the individual. When we speak of Reformation, right? Reformation OPC, this is what we mean. Reformation is the sanctification of the church. It is dressing ourselves in the fine linen and the clear, bright garments that are the righteousness of Christ. And you and I experience this when we are sanctified and we mortify sin in the flesh and we as a church ought to seek the same. That as a body of believers, what we experience individually ought to be corporately known as well. And that through history, what God is doing with the church is making her more and more glorious and fit to be transferred from one life to the next. And so we have every component, everything we need for the message of calling others to come to the wedding. And that is what missions really is. It is knowing that the Great Commission will be successful. Because everyone that the Father has chosen is here, but we're not all there yet, but we will one day be. Which means that according to the eternal decrees of God, the church will be successful in bringing in the whole host of those whom the Father has chosen. Are you following me? If there's a thousand pieces and a thousand piece puzzle, the mission and the work of the church isn't just to try to find 800 of those thousand pieces. It's to find them all and to know that God has planned not just the ends, but the means that that puzzle will be complete and that everyone whom the Father has chosen will be there. Now, whom has the Father chosen? We don't know. Not in full, not in in relationship to the future, but we do know that wherever there are Christians worshiping, there remains for them those outside of the church who are to be brought in. And the heart and the message of the gospel invitation is, So, guys, there is this wedding party that's going to happen. I don't know when, but it's coming up. Here is your invitation. Receive that invitation and then get ready for it. That is missions. It is to prepare the world for the party that is to come, for this wedding and wedding supper that is to come. And so when we go out into all the world, what we are inviting them into is the divine drama of a kind of romance between the bridegroom and the bride and expressing that as a divine gift from the father to the son. Be part of this. In fact, the hardest part of having a human wedding is paring back the wedding invitations. Because you would invite all your friends, but at some point you run out of money to pay for the meals that you would have to provide for everybody. You are limited by something. God is not limited by anything other than his own will. And what is God willed? That the group who will be there will be so numerous and joyous in their expression of having arrived that the sound that they make will be like water rushing over you, a tidal wave. I took someone to the airport the other day on Friday, and he's from the West Coast, and he asked me about surfing in the Atlantic. And I said, well, I've never tried, but I've never been very impressed by the waves, except when there's a hurricane. So I guess keep your schedule open. And so I asked him that question about the guy who was off the coast of Portugal recently who surfed a 100-foot wave. You can hardly see him because in order to get the top of the wave and the bottom, you have to zoom so far out, you just see this little dot and you wonder, when is he going to fall? And will I ever see that dot again? Well, he made it. But when you think ocean and tide don't think atlantic think 100 foot wave off the coast of portugal and it just voom, hits you <laughs> except that's not painful it is exhilarating and it is exhilarating because it is the moment god made us for what is the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If that is not Revelation chapter 19, I do not know what it is. Revelation 19 is not only the culmination of all of human history, it is the fulfillment of every deep longing of the human heart. And so when we go to men and women and children and we seek to bring to them the gospel, this is what it is for. Is for this moment. Because this is the testimony of the prophecy. For the testimony of Jesus, this is it. This is the prophetic word that we go out into the world with and we say to them, come into the feast. In fact, in Luke chapter 14, the master says to his servant, I'm holding a great feast. Invite people in. And so the servant goes to those who are nearest, the Jews, as this is a parable for, and they refuse the invitation, which is why in Revelation they were cast off, the old bride. And so because those first receivers of the invitation ignored the invitation, the master then says to the servant, go to the highways and to the hedges and invite anyone that passes by. But so often we think that the invitation to the wedding feast is not governed by anything other than the labors of the one who invite. But there is so much more to it than that. We invite because we see what's coming. We know that our invitations will be successful. Now, they may not be successful to the the one person we're talking to, but that's up to God. But as we go forth into the world, what we are saying is, come, come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Come, make yourself ready, repent and be baptized, be washed by his blood and come and delight in him. That is our end game. That is our future. That is what we live for. But the irony and the mistake of atomism and the new sort of fangled secular humanism is that we want to have the beauty and the glory of this kind of wedding on earth, and it's not possible. And so what do they say? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. But we say what? We are willing to give our lives to today and give up everything that we have Because that which we long to eat and drink and celebrate has not yet come, and it will come. What man has done is they have inverted the entire human experience, and they want the wedding celebration before they are made righteous, And so the reason we worship in this world, not only with an eye to what is happening, but an eye to also what will happen, is because our hope is not in this world. It is in the world that is to come. And so the whole of human history, if it boils down to this moment, if it all builds to this, then the question is, what are we living for? Why do we sing What lies as the central motivation for all that we do? And I would contend it is this. I love fellowship meal Sundays. And I will be honest with you. In the back of my mind, even while I lead worship and preach, I think, what is going to be at the table? What will I choose? All of these glorious delights. Because Food, celebration, delighting in the fellowship of the saints. I didn't make any of it. It's all there. It's prepared. There will come a day when all the preparation, all the striving, all of that will be ended. And Christ will come to us. And later on, he will... Wipe away our tears. We'll read of that later. But what is happening here is something that only Christ can prepare. It's only something that he can do. And so my exhortation to us, dear saints, is despite all the glorious glimpses of heaven we may get in this life, they are but glimpses of something far more glorious. Live for the wedding. Live for Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Live for that day. Let everything be for that day. Every decision, every purchase, every moment, every occasion, let it be for this day. Let's pray.